Can we give it up for everyone who serves on the First Impressions team? I want to give a special shout out to the newest uh, in terms of welcoming people, our Juan and Stephanie, two of our high school students just joined the team and are doing a tremendous job. If you want to participate, just text the word serve, the church phone number, the connecting center, stop by there, and we'll give you all the information. It's a great way to connect the grades. If you feel like you don't know too many people yet, you jump on a team, you're going to meet more people. And again, we're one church family. We welcome everybody with love. We're grateful that you're here today. We're continuing to celebrate baptisms. In the first service, Kendall was baptized. And I know you weren't there, so I wanted to share with you that Kendall is married and has four boys Lively family, he was baptized as an infant, but now he's put his trust in Jesus. He works downtown, he's living for the Lord in his workplace, and he said he's getting baptized to let everyone know, you know, that he follows Jesus, and also he is saying yes to being that spiritual leader in his family. And I tell you, it was a powerful moment this morning when you had all the young boys lined up there in the front row watching dad get baptized, saying like, we're a Jesus family. And uh, it was amazing. So uh, we just continue to celebrate what God's doing here. We're just trying to authentically grow in our faith together. We're in a series right now in Revelation chapter two, if you brought a Bible or you wanna find it on your phone. And if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We give away Bibles. We like to do that because getting into God's Word isn't just for this place, but it's during the week. We have life groups individually in God's Word, and then we come together on Sundays. We're in a series called The Message that Comes from Jesus, Messages from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And I highlight that because as we go through this book, we are centered on Jesus, We're not centered on history, we're not centered on prophecy, we're not centered on tribulation or the devil or any of those things. We are centered on Jesus. And in this book, the book of Revelation, there are so many things that Jesus himself says. And a lot of people think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels in the New Testament, and Jesus' teaching is there, and it is. The resurrected Jesus is speaking in the book of Revelation. It's important not to miss what Jesus is saying. The resurrected Jesus communicating then to different churches and people, communicating to us, and even telling us things that are yet to come. So we're tuned into Jesus. The message today is the collision, the collision in Pergamum. That's the church and the city that he's going to talk to intimately, and we're going to look at that collision in Pergamum. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we're not here by accident. Thank you that you are our God, and Lord, we can trust you to lead us, to guide us. You heal, you restore. There's no limits to what you can do. We want to grow. We want to learn. We're here. We're teachable. We're listening to you, Jesus, and we give you praise in your name. Amen. Jesus is communicating in the first section of this book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, to churches. And he's communicating honestly. He's communicating in love and truth. Those are both important. Jesus always brings truth, always brings love, full love, full truth. He's tender and he's tough. And we all need that in our walk with Jesus. We need the tenderness of the Lord. We also need the toughness because we grow when we hear truth. And we need truth, but it's all part of his love. And the two go together. And we want to be listening close to Jesus. He's building these churches to be all they're designed to be. And he's building us up. And he's building up Grace Community Church to be all that God has designed to be. The first church in chapter 2 was a church in Ephesus. And they really honored the Lord. But their hearts were starting to wander away from God. Really see that they honor the Lord 
and their hearts were starting to drift. And you don't always notice when someone's heart's drifting because it might look like they're just honoring the Lord, everything's in a great spot, but they're drifting a little. And that was Ephesus, drifting from their first love. And then the next church was Smyrna, and Smyrna was on track, and Jesus cheers them on to keep going because he tells them it's gonna get more difficult and there's gonna be more persecution. So keep going, don't give up, don't tap out, don't quit, you're on the right track. That was the message to Smyrna. Now today in Pergamum, there's a collision. There's a collision between light and darkness in Pergamum. Here's a couple of true facts about Pergamum. The city was very wealthy. A lot of money in the city, about 20 miles inland from the coast and they were known as being very sophisticated in Pergamum. Very intelligent in Pergamum. History tells us that there was a library that contained more than 200,000 volumes in Pergamum. There was a university in the city and there was a thriving business for parchment. It looked from a worldly standpoint like Pergamum was really the place to be. A lot was happening there. From a godly vantage point, in Pergamum, people had souls that were sick. There were souls that were sick in Pergamum. And evil in darkness, it was a battle that was played out that was intense and you could see it and feel it. Would you agree that the last two years it's felt a little more intense? And there's a lot more that we're seeing right now that's getting our attention. And maybe Ukraine gets your attention. Maybe something in Auburn gets your attention. But we're seeing it played out, this battle between light and darkness. Today, we're going to focus on three eye-opening truths that come from Jesus. The first one, there is a fierce battle for the throne in your city and also in your heart. There is a battle for the throne in Auburn and also the throne in your heart. Jesus says in chapter two, starting in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What did Jesus just say about Pergamum? He didn't mince words. He said, your city where Satan lives. Satan lives there and he has his throne there. That would make an interesting brochure for the city. <laughs> Don't expect to really see that on the website. Welcome to Pergamum. This is where Satan lives and has his throne. Social media, that's going to be spicy. But that's what Jesus says. That's his report. This city, Pergamum, means citadel, and it's located a thousand feet above the valley below, kind of a cone shape up on a hill, ancient capital of Asia. It's known early on for emperor worship. Going back to 29 BC, before Christ, they worshiped Augustus. And it was really an official site of emperor worship. In this city, there's idolatry everywhere. There are cults. There are well-known cults. Four that stood out, and the cults were satanic. They're not from God. I want to show you a picture here. Asclepius was one of the Greek-Roman false gods. And they would come to worship Asclepius. You see the symbol there, a snake. There's the serpent. And it was believed, falsely, that Asclepius brings healing. People came from all over the world to Pergamum thinking they're going to receive healing by worshiping Asclepius. We don't have the exact same type of false gods in our city and in our nation uh, that we gather to worship like Asclepius. But I'll tell you, it's very easy in our country to treat 
celebrities, leaders, and famous people as if they're gods and they're not. Don't give them your ultimate loyalty or put your trust in any human, but instead keep your eyes on Jesus. And in that place, they would worship. I mean, Jesus said this is a place where Satan's worshiped on his throne. Now, I'm not thinking that's literally that Satan's right there, but what you see is that people are worshiping in darkness and in lies and in idolatry in that place. Well, what about the Pacific Northwest? It's been interesting as different people send me reports, emails, articles, and pictures. One of the emails I received were Satan worshipers in Olympia. Satan worshipers publicly in Olympia. And throughout the Pacific Northwest, there's Satan worshipers. Over in Coeur d'Alene in Idaho, I saw a printing publicly that there's a gathering. Satan worshipers there in Coeur d'Alene. And they said you can come and be unbaptized in unholy water. So if you follow Jesus and you've been baptized at some point, you want to renounce Jesus and come worship Satan, you can get unbaptized in unholy water, they said. And their wording was interesting as I was looking more into this and what they were saying. Religious liberation, and it will include self-worship. Isn't it interesting that the Satan worshipers are linked so closely with self-worship? Now, Satan, worshiping Satan, we're probably going to reject, Lord willing, fully reject that. But I'll tell you, self-worship is a lot more sneaky. And self-worship is when you start to put Jesus out of the way and you say, I'm going to call the shots. I want to go where I want to go, do what I want to do, say what I want to say. I'm going to lead. Jesus is going to follow. And self-worship is very, very popular in America. My life will be better if I have the steering wheel, not Jesus, so I'm going to lead with self-worship. It's interesting that self-worship and satanic worship are so similar here. Here's one clue if you're putting yourself on the throne instead of Jesus. You probably just don't pray that much because you pray to the one who you think's in control. I mean, why would you pray to God if you're calling all the shots all the time and you feel like you're self-sufficient? Well, then there's not really a need to pray. I don't need to pray much because I'm calling the shots. I got the steering wheel. That's an indicator that there might need to be some changes on the throne that we step down and Jesus is glorified. We follow him. We don't ask him to follow us. We follow him. And Jesus is talking about this collision and I'll tell you, this right here is a Jesus community, a Jesus church. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We honor the Trinity. We believe one God, three persons, and we'll stand on that truth. It's been that way for 70 years. It's not going to change in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what we're all about. And yet there's these collisions. I remember when I was in high school, and I'll give you the visual here. I was in the front seat on the passenger side. My friend was driving. And we were going to take a left-hand turn. We made it up to the intersection. It's 55 miles an hour, and there's a yellow light. So my friend was waiting to take the left turn as traffic and cars were passing. He thought things were in the clear, so went to take the left turn. And as he went into the intersection, there was a car approaching the yellow light that actually sped up because they wanted to make it through the intersection. And as we turned into the intersection, that car sped up faster than 55 and hit right on the door where I was sitting at over 55 miles an hour, completely crunched and destroyed the car. And they used the jaws of life to cut me out of the car, glass everywhere, I was bleeding. It turned out, you know, went to the hospital, internal bleeding. Uh, the shape, in terms of 
the uh, shape on my neck and the upper part of my back, it was changed. The last thing I remember, the last thing I remember was being thrust into the ceiling, the roof of the car, and hitting my head on the roof of the car. That was the last pain and memory I had. And then the next was they're cutting the car open and, you know, I'm being taken out. But the shape in my neck and upper back still isn't what it's supposed to be. It's kind of the inverse of what it was because I made it through a collision. And maybe you've made it through some collisions in life, some things you didn't see coming, some things were out of your control. Maybe they were physical, maybe they were relational, maybe they were spiritual. Collisions don't feel good, but they are part of life. And when good and evil come together, there's a collision. When truth and lies come together, there's a collision. When light and darkness are in the same space, there's a collision. When the word and the world together, nope, there's gonna be a collision. God and the devil, the collision is real. And the collision is being played out in Pergamum, and sometimes we recognize the collision where we live and work and learn and play. Here in Auburn, what would you say is is happening? What are some things you're noticing where the collision is evident? First of all, I want to say that the devil cannot make you do anything. And you don't need to fear because the Holy Spirit in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And in Jesus' name, you walk in truth and in love and you can trust the Lord. No fear needed here. You don't have to fear the devil. He can't make you do anything. We also know that the devil constantly lying, steal, kill, and destroy, seeking to devour. Well, what might that look like? What would be the evidence? Steal, kill, and destroy. Well, let's think about Auburn. The drugs and the abuse, the addictions. Divorce, that's not from God. Corruption, lies, human trafficking, violence, people getting killed, crime, foster kids being neglected, rape, hatred, abuse. Today, this morning, there's, I'd say, less than 5% of the people just waking up, ready to worship Jesus, come to a church, worship the Lord. I mean, spiritually, you can kind of see the condition in Auburn. There's things that get our attention. I was with a group of about 12 people walking in Auburn from our church, and there's a man who came up, and you could tell right away things weren't right. And it was confirmed when he said to us as a group, he said, pray for Satan, pray for Satan, because God has been kind of harsh with Satan said that to us. So what do you do when that happens? They don't train you for that scenario in seminary. And yet that's what's happening in Auburn. So we started to say, can we pray for you? And he said, yes. And we gathered around in Jesus' name. We started to pray for him and pray for his healing, pray for his restoration, pray uh, for God to come into his life, pray for God to move in his life. We started praying together out loud and he started crying. And then he got down on all fours and said, you know, continue to pray. And we kept praying and just kept praying in Jesus' name, kept praying for him. And he's on all fours. And I'll tell you what, he got up after several minutes, lots of tears. And he said, thank you for praying that demon out of me. That's what he said. So there are collisions all around us, and I encourage you not to be naive, not to be passive, not to be in denial, not to be afraid. Well, then what's another option? Here's someone in the Bible. His name is Shema, who inspires me. And I thought of this story in 2 Samuel 23. Next to him was Shema, son of Adji, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together, so here comes the enemy. The Philistines want to wipe everybody out. They're stealing, killing, and destroying. At a place where there was a field of lentils, Israel's troops, they fled from them. Many people are just fleeing in fear. Well, Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. 
this field of lentils. He defended it, struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. He just basically said, that's enough. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. They're taking our people. They're taking our field. They're not going to get this field of lentils. I will stand in the strength of the Lord, and I will stand on this ground. And we need to stand up and take back what the enemy has tried to take. He's tried to bring divorce and drug addictions. He's tried to bring suicide. He tries to do so many things. You have to say, no, I'm going to stand in the love and truth in the name of Jesus. And this field will not go to the enemy. This house will not be taken over by darkness. I'm going to walk in the light. That's it. That's it. And so what do we do? How is God leading you for such a time as this to shine the light of Jesus? Well, the next truth is that the voice of compromise tells you to water down your belief and forsake your convictions. There's a voice of compromise, and if you listen to it, it'll water down your beliefs and you'll forsake your convictions. Jesus is going to talk about two different things in these verses. Look at verse 14. He's continued to talk intimately in truth and in love. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, let's unpack this. First, we have Balaam and Balak. What was going on there? Balak was a king of the Moabites, and he paid money to Balaam. So there's some shady money involved here. The king is paying the sorcerer to curse and cause the Israelites to stumble Shady money. The second thing you notice is sexual impurity and immorality. And this is what Balaam's doing. How can they stumble? How can they water down their beliefs, give up their convictions, and stumble into sin? So there's shady money, there's sexual immorality involved. And the Israelites, they're the ones that are, well, there's an attempt at deception. What do we know about this? Some people that want to take them down and lead them into sexual immorality. That was the reality then. Is that not our culture today? Is that not our culture today? Are we not bombarded with that today? You say, back then, Balaam was putting it together. What does it look like today? Today, we have so many pictures, advertisements, videos, websites, apps, one click away, magazines, stores, and even people that want you to compromise your purity and climb into bed and do things sexually that will not honor the Lord. That's what our culture is pulling people towards all the time, and it's a big group of people that are going right down that road. Right down that road. And what do we do? Walk in the light. Get accountability. Get transparency. Let people see your phone. Say no. You put that stuff together so you can walk in purity, walk in the light, take back what the enemies tried to steal from you. It was happening then. It's happening today. Well, what about the Nicolaitans? Who are they? Nicolaitans were people who would say yes to Jesus and yes to everything the world has to offer. They said yes to Jesus and yes to every sinful pleasure that they wanted. And it got kind of confusing, and there was dissonance, and it was a double life, and like, what's really going on here? Technically, they were Christians, but they really weren't living like it. And maybe you have some Nicolaitans that you're, don't judge anyone. You're not better than anyone. 
But just being realistic, you're watching some people that say they're Christian. Oh, they can say it so well and quote the Bible verse. But you know what's going on behind the scenes, and it's not consistent at all with Christ. Well, Nicolaitans, Christians today, just doing what they want, thinking they're going to say, I got eternal life with Jesus, so let me go get a whole bunch of this stuff over here that the world's taken. And that's what they did. They were Nicolaitans. What's interesting here, and don't just listen to Jesus' words and the principles, but listen to his heart. Nicolaitans, we heard about them two weeks ago. We are talking about what's happening in Ephesus. And Jesus said, the Ephesians are resisting the Nicolaitans. And he says, people in Pergamum are running with them. What a difference. What does this mean? Some people, the Bible says, resist the devil and flee temptation. And some people are going to resist the devil. Some people are going to run with the devil. In Ephesus, they're resisting the devil, resisting the Nicolaitans in that lifestyle, in that teaching. But you know what? In Pergamum, they're running with the devil. They're running with the devil. And that's got to break the heart of the Savior because he sees in Ephesus resisting and he sees in Pergamum you're going to see some people that resist the devil and some people run with the devil. And it's going to break your heart. And sometimes it might even be your own kids or it might be someone in your family. It might be someone that used to be your Bible study leader. It might be a pastor at some point that they go from resisting the devil to running with the devil. It might be a leader that's well-known as a Christian and respected. And then what happens? Maybe they're in government or military and they just decide to run with the devil. Well, Pergamum, they're going to run with the devil. Ephesus, they're going to say no to the Nicolaitans. And it breaks your heart. But this is the reality that was breaking the heart of Jesus as he was looking at the different cities. Now, I I brought a visual today to try to make it simple, clear, and plain right here. And in talking about compromise, watering down, convictions, decisions, I brought some orange juice. And this isn't a commercial, although this is the orange juice I like. Florida's natural. Got a lot of pulp in there. I'm getting no orange juice for this advertisement whatsoever. Uh, But it's nothing from concentrate. That's great. You got some pulp in there. And a lot of times in the morning, I like to have some orange juice. So you can see, pouring my orange juice. Excited about some orange juice. Vitamin C. Here we go. Now, I also brought something else. Because orange juice, I mean, you just want to drink orange juice. That'd be great. But there's something else to add. And over here, I've got some water. You're talking about watering things down, compromising, diluting. And what happens when you just add a little water to the orange juice? It's a little different, isn't it? Probably still have it, but it's not going to taste quite the same. Well, what happens when you keep adding water? Because once you start adding water, it's really easy to add more water. And once you've had a couple of shots of water in there, now you're like, well, what do you call this drink? And you keep adding water, and if you went to a restaurant and said, can I have orange juice, and they brought this out to you, what would you do? You might say, could you take that back and bring me something a little stronger? Could you bring me some orange juice that doesn't taste so diluted? It's not so watered down. I'm not even sure you can really call this orange juice at a restaurant. Like, can I have my money back? Like, I'm not sure what you do with this because it's really watered down. Does that make sense so far? You tracking so far how much water you're adding right now to water things down? Well, there's a part that you don't know. Can I share something that you don't know? Where did I get this water? Now, you might think or guess Safeway, Starbucks, 
Did I get it from my house? Where did the water come from? I want to tell you where this water came from. This came from a toilet. Some people in the front row knew this. This came from a toilet. This is not the water you buy in a store. This was toilet water that filled up this bottle. And now doesn't that change your view of this drink right here? I don't think anybody's coming up to have some orange juice drink after the service now. Because this is orange juice and toilet water. And sometimes we think, oh, we're just adding clean water, but there isn't clean water. This is toilet water in here. And some people will rationalize and say, check out the new energy drink. (laughs) And I say, that's not an energy drink. That's a toilet drink right there. They say, no, it's got vitamin C. It tastes kind of sweet. No, that's bitter right there. They say, no, that juice right there, it's, it's healthy for you. Say, that's not healthy. That's death in that water right there. That's not living water. There's death in that water right now. And you know what happens is you watch hundreds of millions of people drinking. I'm not going to drink this water. <laughs> when I was a college pastor, it might have come up to my lips. I might do a little more with it, but I'm not going to drink this. But what breaks your heart is watching people drink toilet water, and they're sharing it with their friends, like, go get some. You just need a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of his word, and then forsake your beliefs and convictions, water it down. This is the progression in Pergamum, and it's the progression that's still today. The first step is to water it down, and then you water it down a little more, and you hide it and add a couple more lies, and you water it down. And what that leads to then is a rejection of God's word, and you're no longer living in alignment with God's word. And the next step is idolatry, because now Jesus isn't on the throne, but I've stepped in, or my sin has stepped in, or money stepped in, or sex has stepped in, or drugs has stepped in. Something's on the throne. Someone's on the throne besides Jesus, and now it's idolatry. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Idolatry leads to immorality, then creates a stronghold in our lives, a foothold in our lives, and we walk around drinking more of this stuff, until we turn back to Jesus. Can I just tell you, don't drink toilet water. Don't drink it. And Jesus has living water. Today could be a day of repentance. What's repentance? It's not just, oh, I got caught. Yeah, I'm thinking about making a change. Repentance is a whole full coming to the Lord, saying, you be on the throne. I want to follow you. Thanks for your grace and mercy and a new start and I want to change, and I want to live different, and Jesus, you can do it. That's what Pergamum needs, and when we sin, and all of us sin, we need a full repentance and a restoration that comes from Jesus. It leads to the third truth. There's an escalation of the spiritual battle before Jesus returns. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, as Jesus is going to return, and he will, a couple things you need to know. We're going to shift into prophecy in this section. First, there's a great falling away. There's a great tribulation. And there's a great battle and final showdown. In action movies, you ever notice there's a final showdown between good and evil? 
And all of that is just a reflection of the ultimate final showdown, this ultimate fight. Jesus says, I'm going to come. I'm going to return. There's going to be a fight. I've got a sword. The word of God is our sword. It's a double-edged sword. When Jesus returns, he is returning as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's returning with authority, and he's going to judge. He's not returning in a manger He's returning as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and with his word and authority, he brings a final judgment, and there's a final battle. That's in Scripture. It's for us to take in. Let's set the stage. There's a devil who's real, a fallen archangel, and then there's two others you need to know about in addition to the devil. Let's take a look at some Scripture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and consider this is the Antichrist not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way because deception will increase the closer we are to the return of Jesus. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. What is this big rebellion and final battle? The man of lawlessness. That's the Antichrist. In the Bible, there's many Antichrists against Christ, but there is one Antichrist called the man of lawlessness. Jesus is the Holy One, and this is the lawless one. He's revealed. He's the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He proclaims that he is deity and demands to be worshipped. This is in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now let's move to the book of Revelation. Continue to describe the Antichrist. In chapter 13, verse 2, The beast I saw, this is the Antichrist, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon, the devil gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a head, had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. So the world's going to see this wound, looks like he's dead, now he's back. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Look at, as we continue, this next verse. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. That's important we got three and a half years. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. 42 months, that's three and a half years. Some of you, this is new, and you're like, what did I just learn at church? And some of you have been studying this for a lot of years. Prophecy, Daniel, and Revelation, the whole Bible's linked together. In Daniel, there's a great tribulation described for seven years. In the middle of those seven years of tribulation, this Antichrist is going to step up. He appears very reasonable, almost peaceful. He's going to step up and demand full allegiance and worship in this world. And really, it's an Antichrist. And he steps into that role. Now, um, I'll add this to it, uh, because in our church, we major on the majors. And we all believe uh, that there's Jesus Christ's return, and it's going to be physical and visible. Okay, we're all on the same page. Now, none of us are on the planning committee. We're all on the welcoming committee for the return of Jesus. And we major on the majors that he's going to return. There's different viewpoints on the minors, and there's a wide range in this room. Here's a specific example. Some people in this room think that there's going to be a rapture, and we are not going to be here for the seven years of tribulation. There's other people who insist that we will be here for the seven years of tribulation. My personal belief is that we won't be here, 
But if you want to stick around for it, more power to you. Uh, I, I will be waving to you on the way out, but you stick around and have some fun with that. No, I'm, I'm playing around, but you know, in the minors, we, we are united together. Sometimes there's minors for people who love the Lord and trust his word, but we all know Christ is returning. There's a devil, there's an antichrist, and there's one more. This is still in Revelation chapter 13. We have the false prophet, also described as a beast. Then I saw a second beast, the false prophet, coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the Antichrist, the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in view of all the people. And then one more verse here as we consider this false prophet. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Read this chapter in your own time. You'll see there's a number 666. More important than the number is a system they've set up where if you don't bow down and worship the Antichrist, you will not be able to buy, sell, travel, trade. Like there's going to be so much pressure. And some people will refuse that and be killed, but they're going to honor God. Other people who love God, they're going to give in. And they're going to bow down to the Antichrist. It'll be a tough decision. Here's the parallel. As Jesus is talking to churches, it was emperor worship. And we look back and say, wow, that was in the history. Emperor worship. You had to bow down to the emperors and worship them and give your allegiance, your ultimate allegiance to them, or else you'd be killed or cut off or thrown in jail. Well, that's coming back in the future when the Antichrist shows up and brings that whole system back again. Don't take your liberties we have in this country for granted. People have died for them that we have the freedom to praise Jesus and tell everyone about Jesus and worship in Jesus' name because restrictions will increase. And and what we have in our faith, we worship one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There will be a false trinity This false prophet pointing people to the Antichrist, just like the Holy Spirit, is actually pointing people to Jesus. And look at the truth. This is from 2 Corinthians 11, 14. The schemes of the devil, and no wonder for Satan himself, masquerades as an angel of light. Satan is always copying, trying to scheme evil schemes to pull your allegiance away from God. In this false trinity... The devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet that you see in the end times is yet another attempt. Temptation. It's not that the devil wants to make sin look disgusting. The devil makes sin sound so great and good for you, and you'll be so much better off if you sin. Masquerading as the light, deceiving so many people. And that's why it's important that we understand Scripture, know the signs of the times, not in fear, full of faith, full of truth, full of love, united together. We walk through whatever's coming with our confidence in Jesus. And you say, well, give me some encouragement. And uh, there is encouragement. And you see it at the end in what Jesus brings in his tenderness. He says, and just listen to these things. All right, listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Word. Get rid of the noise. Get rid of the strangers' voices. Get more time alone. Take walks. Get in the Bible. Listen to the Spirit. That's what he says. It's so important. He says, repent. Full repentance. Do that today. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus today. Jesus says there's hidden manna. You say, well, what's manna? Well, in the wilderness... And sometimes we feel like we're in the wilderness. God still provided manna. 
And there's manna, spiritual nourishment that God is going to bring you in your most difficult days. Continue to receive the manna that God is providing. And you say, well, what else? This white stone. Stones were valuable. They gave stones to people who were poor so they could buy some things. Stones were involved. uh, When you think about the Old Testament priests, they had stones. Stones also could be an admission, uh, an acceptance to get into an event. And so stones had a lot of value. This white stone appears to be one of acceptance. Know that you are accepted by God, not because you've earned it, but because of grace through Jesus Christ. And be secure that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been given a stone of great value. The price has been paid for. And the closing one, you have a new name. You have a new name in the, in the baptism today. We heard I'm a new creation. I've been molested many times, but God is restored. I know in Jesus, I'm a new creation. God gives you a new name. The past doesn't define you. The trials don't define you. It's a name of victory. You have been given the greatest name of victory. It's to be, you know, you are in God's family forever, and no one can take that away. It's an indestructible identity. Rejoice in that. Be solid in that, and your house will be a house on the rock and not the sand. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, we thank you. Even the battle between light and darkness that's so real. And the church in Pergamum, the people in Pergamum, the light was dimming. And God, sometimes we feel like the light is getting more and more dim. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the light of the world, that your light shines in the darkness. You said that we too are the light of the world, and that's our identity. And we want to live for you, Jesus, in the light. We want to walk in the light today, repenting of sins, putting trust in you for the first time in this room for some people. Water baptism. We give you praise for what you're doing here today. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen.